Take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Yes, as you know, we are still one of these churches that opens these Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, you've already endured a mini-sermon from me this morning, so I will take that into account here and try not to be long-winded, but I make no promises. First uh, Timothy chapter 2. Let's begin this morning by reading the text together, verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. Paul writes, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. That's as far as we will go this morning. Now, In this passage, the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy three basic things. There is a command, and there are, by my count, two reasons for the command. So my sermon this morning is going to follow that format. Three parts, the command and the two reasons for the command. The command comes by way of an exhortation. He begins, I exhort. He is exhorting the Ephesian church to do something. If you don't like the word exhort, you could substitute the word call or admonish or beseech. It is a plea, basically an instruction of something that they are supposed to be doing. But it's an instruction, and this is what makes it an an exhortation. It's an instruction delivered with a reasoned, passionate plea behind it. If I tell my daughter, love your sister, that is a command. But if I say to my daughter, love your sister because God has given her to you and he cares for her just like he cares for you and it is good and right to love those around us with the love of Jesus Christ. Christ calls us to do this and so you should love your sister. That is an exhortation. Love your sister is merely a command. An exhortation puts all the reasons behind the command into a passionate plea for the listener. An exhortation tries to stir someone's heart to obey. Now, what is Paul then exhorting Timothy and the Ephesian church to do in verses 1 and 2? He writes, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So part one of the passage is the command we are to make 
supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks for all men, including specifically kings and those who are in authority. And along with this command, we are given the immediate reason why we should do this. Verse 2 says, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now, let's break these two verses down. Beginning with this, what are the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks? There are four things mentioned there. What are they to us? Basically, the answer is they would all fall under the category of what we commonly call prayers. Supplications is when you ask for something a person doesn't have. Therefore, you are asking God to supply it. The idea being supplication. Prayers are just communication with God. That we're very familiar with. Intercessions are when you take up someone else's cause. You intercede on their behalf. Some of us do that very naturally. Do we have people here who just naturally find themselves always jumping in for someone else, always trying to help out, lend a hand? Some people do that very naturally. Here it means doing that before God, bringing their work, their effort, their, their challenge before the Lord alongside them. And giving of thanks is when we acknowledge that God has given us something for which we are thankful for. So we give thanks to Him in prayer. So all four of these things go together. They are not four separate things. They're all prayer. And they all put together, they're all put together like this in verse 1. So that we realize that when we are praying for other people, we are supposed to be truly, completely praying for them. Not partially or half-hearted, which we would sometimes be tempted to do, especially when it comes to kings and authorities who are in focus here. It is one thing to thank God for someone. For instance, we might pray, Lord, thank you for our president. I don't like him. I didn't vote for him. I don't want him to succeed. But thanks anyway for our president. Amen. Now, that is giving thanks, but that is not what Paul wants because it is only partial in our genuine prayer for that person. It is not coupled with intercession and supplication in prayer. It is simply an acknowledgement. Yep, this came from God, so thanks, but that's the end of it. That's not what Paul wants. That is not what God wants. Instead, we might pray, Lord, thank you for our president, and I pray that you give him strength and wisdom that's supplication, supply what he needs. And I pray that you strengthen him to perform your will, that is intercession, coming alongside him on the task God has given him. And that you will help me to love and demonstrate the love of Christ for him because you have appointed him and so I am thankful for him. You see the difference in the two prayers. It's not hard, of course. That is a First Timothy 2 prayer. So what Paul is saying in verse 1 is that our prayer is not supposed to be, we might say, negligent or pitiful, which we are sometimes guilty of doing, aren't we? You get down on your hands and knees, you know that it is time to pray, you have a list of things to be praying for, and we just start rattling them off. Bang, 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 bang. And we are not truly presenting this person or this need up in the fullness of sincerity of heart for which we should be offering it, to the Lord, who of course knows what's in our heart, we are just rattling the list. Which is not a bad thing, to have a list or to present a list before God. 
But it also might be insufficient if we are not praying this way for all men as we are here commanded. So we need to keep that in mind. And the focus then in verses 1 and 2 is that we specifically pray for kings and all who are in authority. Now those of you who know your Bibles know that this is certainly not unique to this passage. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17 tells us that we should show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. Now keep in mind that these Roman emperors and kings that they were dealing with in Paul's day and Peter's day and Timothy's day were not exactly outstanding moral leaders. They were some awful folks. One of the most interesting things is when you get to the book of Acts and you see Paul, who is himself imprisoned, standing up to make a plea before two leaders who seem, frankly, ambivalent to his own righteousness and the injustice of the situation. Nevertheless, he not only pleads his case, but he does so in a full-on gospel presentation to Festus and Agrippa. He just, I know that you tation to them, pleading that they be saved, even at one point saying, do you believe these things? I know that you do. To which the king replies, Paul, would you have me become a Christian? And Paul says, I would that you in every way become like me except for these chains. See, that's a man who realized that you don't love your leaders and pray for your leaders and care for your leaders and intercede for your believers because you agree with everything that they do or because they love you in return. You do it out of honor and reverence and obedience to our Lord. Romans 13.1 Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Did you know this is not just a New Testament principle? You might be forgiven for thinking that it is a New Testament principle because when we think of the Old Testament, we think of Israel as a nation. And we think of them kind of at war with other nations. Here is the command from God in Jeremiah chapter 29. As Israel was taken into captive, taken into exile by other pagan nations. So now their king would not be a king appointed in Israel, but a king who was a pagan king, a king like Nebuchadnezzar, a king like like Belshazzar, a a not good fellow. And here is the command in Jeremiah 29 verse 7. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is not merely a New Testament principle. This is God's will for His people. You know, some Christians have the idea that if we aren't being persecuted, we must be doing a lousy job, right? And, and you may have heard someone really try to stir up evangelism in your heart before by saying, hey, if you're not really being persecuted, then you must not be doing the right thing. But here Paul says, That it's a good thing if we can live a quiet and peaceable life. We shouldn't go around trying to pick a fight everywhere just because, hey, I'm a Christian and a Christian is an enemy of the world and so I'm going to go try to make an enemy out of the world. That's not the idea. I'm glad that I get to live, for the most part, a quiet and peaceable life. I don't want to always be at war with the people around me. I don't want to always be in the middle of a conflict. There are people who gravitate towards conflict, We shouldn't be that. 
I don't want to have my stuff seized and my family harmed and my job taken away from me. I don't want all of that. I wouldn't mind a quiet and peaceable life. So I need to pray for the president and the lawmakers and the judges and, by the way, the mayors and police officers and all who have authority. I need to pray for them that God would strengthen them to perform His will, that He would give them wisdom to rule, power to restrain evil, and hearts that will stave off the corrupting influence of sin, which is the spirit of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, that would manipulate the human condition for his own evil purposes. We should pray for that. I wouldn't mind a peaceful and quiet life, and praise God, for the most part, that's what I've had. But, There is a caveat at the end of verse 2. A stipulation, if you will. Do you see it? It says that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. In other words, if I can live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, that would be good. But if... Living a quiet and peaceable life requires ungodliness and irreverence. I cannot settle for that. This is why persecution is a reality. Godliness and reverence are not, as it turns out, shadowy secrets that can be covered up in a person's life in order to avoid the confrontation that might come with them in the world. They are bright, shining lights, as if you were standing out on the runway of an airport in the evening with two orange beacons in your hand saying, right here is something unique that you should be aiming for. That is a Christian, if you will, in the darkness of the world, living godly and reverently before him, saying right here is the right thing to do and the right way to live, and the right spiritual condition of all humanity. Now, if you can live like that, waving down the world towards the glory of God, exemplifying it in your own life, and still be left alone to live quietly and peaceably, well done. But if living quietly and peaceably requires taking the giant flares that point to your godly reverence and putting them behind your back whenever the wrong person's looking then that is not well with us. Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 14, making this abundantly clear, you are the light of the world in Christian. By the presence of God in your life, you are the light of the world. It's not a light you can flick on or off, as Jesus will say. A city that is on a hill cannot be hidden. You cannot turn it off. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Now, some of you may know what it's like to be sleeping in a dark room and have someone walk in and flip the light switch on. And you're like, oh, my wife gets that experience sometimes in the morning. She does not always respond well. You know what that's like. But guess what? When someone comes in and flips on a light switch in a room, it is not optional to those in the room whether or not they see it, is it? It's just on. And some people are like, well, I need it on. i got to see what I'm doing. And the person in bed is like, I need it off. I'm trying to sleep. But it is not optional. This is what Jesus means when he says that you don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it it does give light 
to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. If we can live a quiet and peaceable life while brightly shining the light of God like a beacon in darkness, that should be our goal. But if living a quiet and peaceable life means concealing the glory of God at work in us, if it means carefully guarding our true feelings and the Spirit at work in our lives, if it means being silent about the true hope of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, if that is the cost of a persecution-free life, then we must embrace persecution. And we receive the warning of Jesus in the same sermon that those who follow Him will experience trouble and persecution. Bottom line, if we have to choose between quiet, peaceful living and godliness, there is only one option. There is only one option. In Germany in the 1920s, which for those for whom history is a little foggy, that's a good two decades before World War II, at least a decade and a half. As the Nazi party began to rise to power before anyone truly recognized it on the global scene as the nefarious organization that it was, while they were still just meeting in their own interior meetings within Germany, conspiring on how they might seize power and put Hitler at the forefront of it, during this time, Germany was a predominantly, distinctly Protestant, evangelical Christian nation. And while the Nazis saw the conservatism of the church as a good thing for them politically, the theological difficulty to their own ideology was obvious to them even then. This is from an article written back in 2002, published in the New York Times, back when the New York Times still published articles that favored Christianity. And here's just one little paragraph on it. There was a dilemma for Hitler. While conservatives, the Christian churches could not be reconciled with the principle of racism, with a foreign policy of unlimited aggressive warfare, or with a domestic policy involving the complete subservience of the church to the state. Given that these were the fundamental underpinnings of the Nazi regime, conflict was inevitable. And sometimes it is. See, Christians in Germany, who were sent to concentration camps long before a war, understood that we are commanded to pray for our leaders and seek a quiet and peaceable life. But we are never to broker a deal with our leaders by which we secure our own peace and prosperity at the cost of godliness. Sometimes conflict is inevitable. Let's pray that it doesn't come. Now, the second part, after the command, becomes the reasoning for the command. In verses 3 and 4, here comes the exhortation from Paul. So part 1 of the sermon, the command, now we get to the exhortation. Verses 3 and 4, For this is good and acceptable, in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And now we come to our first big theological question in this letter to Timothy. And here it is. What does it mean that it says that God desires all men to be saved? 
What does that mean? Does that mean that God desires every single human being to be saved? And if it does mean that, why is not everyone saved? Is not God able to do what He desires? Isn't salvation a gift from God in the first place? Isn't it true that no one can come to the Lord unless the Lord first draws them and the person whom the Lord chooses can never be plucked from His hand? But we know every single person is not saved. So what does this verse mean that God desires all men to be saved? This is why, friends, you cannot study the Bible or teach the Bible, as is the habit of many, by pulling out verses in isolation from the text and saying, see, these are our instructions for the day. When Paul writes that God desires all men to be saved, there are two clarifications that we need to understand. First, he is saying that salvation is good and it comes from God. God desires what is good. And second, that there is no special category of people who salvation belongs to. God desires salvation. Salvation is good. God desires salvation for all kinds of men, all kinds of people, and not just Israelites. In other words, Paul is not saying this. God desires every single person to be saved, but unfortunately, as hard as God is trying to save them, their will to resist Him is just too strong. That is not the message of the Bible. What the passage is saying is that the salvation of God is available to all kinds of people. And this comes into focus immediately in the verses that follow. Because in verse 5, Paul teaches about the one true God and the one true Messiah who gave himself for all. And in verse 7, Paul makes the special point by using the word all, he means that God has included the Gentiles to whom which he is saying, and not lying, he has been called to preach this gospel, which we know was no small controversy for the early church. In other words, there isn't one version of God for Israel and another version of God available to the Gentiles. There isn't one Messiah for Israel and another Messiah for the Gentiles. There isn't one gospel by which Israel is saved and another gospel by which the Gentiles are saved. Our one God is saving all men, Jew and Gentile, through the one Messiah, and this is described to us in verse 4. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Salvation happens when a person is spiritually awakened so that they come to know the truth. And what is the truth? Number one, because of their sin, they have been separated from an almighty, eternal creator God who they will face damnation when they die. Number two, Jesus, the only Son of God, was born into this world. Number three, of their sin on His sinless shoulders at the cross. And number three, having died to forgive us of our sins, this same Jesus, the only begotten of God, has risen from the grave so that we might have everlasting life with God instead of condemnation to eternal hell. And this gospel message is the same for Jew and Gentile. It is the same for the rich and the poor. 
children and youth, it is the same for the cool and the uncool. For the weird and the normal. It is the true invitation of God to be accepted. And in the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2, it is the same for the peasant and the king. God desires that all receive this message. All classes, all kinds, all races. This is the problem that the Nazis had with the Christians. They could not limit the gospel to the Aryan race. This is the problem the Judaizers had with Paul. They could not limit the gospel to the Jews. This is Paul's version of the Great Commission where Jesus said to his disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This is the evidence that God hates racism. This is how the Nazis knew the Christians would be a problem for their agenda. God desires all men to be saved. Not just white men, not just one race, not just Israelites. So, we should pray for all men everywhere, which is the exhortation. Now, bringing us to the third point and the final one this morning. Which is the fact that our one God who is saving people into one family has achieved this through one mediator, Jesus Christ. I want to read verses 5 through 7 with you again. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Let's just pause there. What does it mean that there is one mediator? It means that there is one being in all of creation who might stand in the bridge between you and eternal God and reconcile things. One. Christians embrace the derogatory term of their Jewish persecutors in the first century when they were chastised as being called the way. Paul himself talks about how in his formal days, in his former days, he himself persecuted those of the way. The way. There is one way. Why? Because there is one mediator. I don't know if you were paying attention to the news or if you have just decided I am done with the news for the time being. Would not fault you for either one. But this weekend, something fascinating happened. You might have missed it, but something fascinating happened. You see, the Pope went out all by himself and he decided he was going to do something to his mind, which is absolutely extraordinary. Now let me read to you the press release from the Catholic News. And I w- this will not be like me reading 
document after document. I promise, don't go to sleep on me. I realize it was a mistake to read so long a portion from Martin Luther's letter, but we are, we're not going to do that here, so stay with me, okay? Here is the press release. Pope Leonard Francis said he will grant a plenary indulgence to the faithful who watch or listen to his extraordinary blessing. And it's titled here in Latin, and I feel no obligation to pronounce it. This address blessing given to the city and the world at 6 p.m. Rome time, March 27th. What does that mean? It means, as we summarize in the highlighted portion here, sins are forgiven through the sacrament of penance. Do you know what penance is? Now, the sacrament of penance in the Catholic Church is the idea that when you do something wrong, you go to the priest who is the go-between between you and God. And the priest hears your confession for all of your known sin. And he absolves your confession and issues a, a penance, the penance being you have to go do something to atone for what you have done. And the penance might be, go say a Hail Mary four times. It might be, you must now fast for X amount of days. It might be some prayer you say right there on the spot with the priest and everything is better. But the idea here is that for the Christian, whatever sins you confess for the priest must face a certain penance on the earth, a certain punishment on the earth. Here it is again. Sins are forgiven through the sacrament of penance but then, there is a kind of punishment still due to the sinner, the Pope explained during a general, general audience in 1999. The Pope had said that the temporal, the temporary punishment that remains after forgiveness is truly a grace. In other words, when you pay a punishment even after you've been forgiven, it's a grace of God aimed at wiping away the residues of sin. Offering the Reform Center the chance to complete healing through a journey of purification that can take place in this life or in purgatory. That's what purgatory is. You must pay penance for your sins. Now, the Pope stood up and issued an indulgence, which is a fascinating thing. An indulgence absolves all those to whom it is offered of the obligation of paying penance for their sin. So if penance is the way your sins are forgiven, and indulgence is a way to mass forgive those sins without any penance, that's pretty fascinating. In order to obtain the indulgence that the Pope was offering to the whole world, there were some qualifications. You must have a spirit detached from sin. Good luck with that. Sacramental confession as soon as possible. Because this not being able to meet together is a big problem for Catholics that are just tallying up the sin every day without any penance to pay for it. You must take communion as soon as possible. You have to make prayers for the Holy Father's intentions, the Pope's intentions. And you have to be spiritually united through the media to the Pope's special prayer and blessing on March 27th. In other words, you've got to watch that blessing somewhere. 
So if a good Catholic goes to Twitter this afternoon with a repentant heart and watches that little video, everything is okay. It's just one problem. My Bible says there is one mediator between God and man. And it ain't the Pope. There is one man who died on a cross to forgive sin. And when he forgives it, he pays the ransom for it that we're directed to here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 so that there is no more penalty to be paid. Sure. If you are in sin unrepentantly, you might experience the discipline of the Lord. That is not punitive. That is not punishment. You know the difference between a punishment and a corrective? Every parent does. Every parent should. You punish a child to show them that what they did is wrong and you discipline are establishing there is a price to be paid. You discipline someone with the intention of standing. When you tie whatever consequence there is to sin towards the teaching and the education and the understanding of what is right and how we should behave in the future. You disappear from the church and God begins to discipline you, to turn you back around, that's not punitive. That's not punishment. That's not because your sins are experiencing judgment. That's the love of a father who would turn a child around. It is chastisement. It is discipline. It is not wrath and anger towards you. Jesus paid the price for our sin. You don't have to pay it. Not in the temporary sense right now. Certainly not in any made up place called purgatory. And all of this magical, mystical mumbo jumbo that people think they have to do. And it's not just in the Catholic faith. Eastern Orthodoxy and the like. All of this nonsense stuff that people think they need to do is all a bunch of mystical, made up babble. For the Christian, there is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Now, think of this carefully as we read it and close. Who gave himself a ransom for all. Amen? Amen. To be testified in due time. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that you're supposed to give testimony of it. I think it means that you're supposed to tell people about Him. I think it means that you're supposed to show people as best you can the light of the gospel by declaring, what did we read now in verse 4? The knowledge of the truth. Not simply by doing good deeds or trying not to sin but testifying your knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ in due time. That's my prayer for you and for all of us. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we do not stand on the hook to seek out or merit forgiveness anymore. Forgive us for that fool's errand before salvation and give us strength and wisdom now. 
Father, help us to do what's right, to think what's right, and to feel what's right in very uncertain times. Guide our hearts and our minds. Help those of us who have leadership responsibilities in our homes, in our workplaces, and in our churches and community. Help those of us who have leadership responsibilities to do what is right and wise. Give us clarity. Help us to humbly approach you, faithfully approach you, And Father, give us a heart that prays for all men, that lifts up supplications and intercessions while giving thanks for all men. Help us to be people who testify to who you are and what Jesus has done so that all might be saved from every group and people. And in heaven there is on display a great diversity that from every people, nation, tribe, and tongue, the gospel has penetrated and, co- and created and collected a new people forever and ever. We are citizens of that kingdom, and we long for it now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.